Hello, everybody. Welcome to Guys 5 Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelican. You are listening to episode 167, and tonight we are covering the top five films of 1982. So, Frank, how are you feeling about this list so far? Um, It's a good list. Uh, I wish I could have spent more time like watching the movies over the past couple weeks, but um, work has been pretty ridiculous, but... I'm pretty familiar with all the movies anyway, and I, I was able to watch the ones that have been a long time since I've seen. So, yeah, but yeah, it was um, it's it's good. I think it's got a lot of variety to it, and yeah, some really great movies. Yeah, it's it's, it's always enjoyable. Um, these top five films of each year list for me. Um, always eclectic. Uh, so let's just kind of like jump right in. Like, what other things did you consider putting on this list that um? that didn't quite make it um so the the short list is actually pretty expansive for 82 um uh, britannia hospital um diner uh eating raul um fanny and alexander which we've talked about before mm-hmm. um conan which that's just more of like a sentimental favorite not necessarily something i think is one of the i mean i i really love conan but whatever it doesn't really compare to you know, a lot of the movies on the list are in the short list. Yeah. Um, Dark Crystal, which I think is a pretty important movie for the time, um, especially with, you know, the kind of one of the first, um, maybe even the first, I guess, movie that Henson, like that whole Henson dark fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, Halloween 3, another sentimental favorite. Um, Liquid Sky, which, you know, we've talked about before. Um, Poltergeist, which we've talked about recently. Mm-hmm. Um, Tron, which is also a sentimental favorite. Um, indie movie called White Dog, which is really good. Um, kind of a meditation on racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and the year of living dangerously. Um, so a bunch of movies that I think are all enjoyable in their own rights, um, but not really on the same level as the five movies that are on this list. Yeah, uh, White Dog and Britannia Hospital was are the only two I'm not familiar with at all. Like, never even heard of them before. What's Britannia Hospital? What is um shit? What is his name? Uh, fuck. I'm gonna have to look his name up. Lindsay Anderson, right? Um, movie. I'm looking it up right now. Yeah, Lindsay Anderson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of in the same vein as uh. Like if kind of I mean not okay. not not the same movie as that, um, but Anderson being like really into that British uh, British slice of life, like not really satire, but like almost like naturalistic expose. It's about the a hospital with the staff that's on strike. Okay, um, comedy, I suppose best way to describe it, but him reuniting with malcolm mcdowell um after uh oh lucky man and if mm-hmm. um two movies which i really love i'm not as big a fan as britannia hospital as i am of the other two right um but i really like Lindsay anderson a lot i mean you know those two uh billy liar sporting life um castle keep i mean he's like a bunch of stuff that i really like and he's somebody that we don't really talk about and have we talked about if or no oh lucky man no nope. i don't know what lists they make mm-hmm. um maybe one year when we really are digging to the bottom of the barrel we just do a Lindsay anderson list because 
happen. I mean, so, I, I I don't know if you've seen any of his movies. So you, you you've seen If and No Lucky Man, right? I've seen If. That's it. Um, I think you would really like Billy Liar and The Sporting Life a lot. Hmm. Um, I think you would like Britannia Hospital too. I know you're not a huge fan of If, but yeah, it depends. I mean, I was in my mid twenties when I saw that, so who knows how I think about it nowadays? But and I think Oh Lucky Man is a is a great movie. So yeah, uh, Conan we talked we have talked about previously. If anybody's mm-hmm. interested, um, in our um fantasy list which was like episode 15 or 16 um that's a funny episode if you want to go back and listen listen to that it's one of the first times i really ever like break bad on yeah uh uh-huh yeah um dark crystal definitely need to talk about it like someday um yeah fanny alexander we talked about um uh for uh oh damn it what's his name frank yeah the the bergman episode if you go back and look at that it's uh january of uh two years ago i believe i think it's 2000 um halloween three we talked about i believe last year um um 2021 that was on the underrated um sequels list uh liquid sky was on the counterculture list which i believe is episode 19 if i remember correctly poltergeist is just in the archives from october of this year where we did a deep dive on that uh tron i figure will be coming up at some point and then you said white dog is um what did you say meditation on like racism is what you said yeah um it's on criterion channel or maybe hbo max it's 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 somewhere streaming um white dog is a it it's basically i don't know it's it's hard to explain like it's better just to if we ever do the episode but um it was one of those things where when I was buying like every Criterion DVD that came out, mm-hmm. um, so I didn't know anything about it when I first saw it, but uh, I was really impressed with it. Um, it's worth watching without me like spoiling anything from it. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Oh, Samuel Fuller. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Gotcha. All right. So I want to talk a little bit before we start about um, like kind of my approach to this list. And so I think that number one i think all five of these movies are pretty great movies but i think every single one of these movies is almost more interesting to talk about either the kind of the details surrounding the movie um or the production of the movie or the influence of the movie um more so than like talking about the actual movie itself because all of them have um yeah i i I think pretty interesting um pretty interesting you know backstories and histories and um there's definitely some some really great filmmakers represented here um some people that we've talked about a lot and some people not much so um i'm pretty excited to talk about you know the filmmakers the directors the lists the movies themselves um and a couple of movies we've already discussed so yeah i mean um, everybody on this list is a is a uh well, with the exception of like one director, maybe, but um, the movie's pretty iconic. But I mean, these are all heavy hitters as usual with these, yeah. um, in their respective genres and just mm-hmm. in general. Yeah. Um, and a couple guys that like we've never really explored like them as um, their backstories and their histories. Um, and one guy who I really like a lot, um, who we've talked about a couple, one of his movies previously. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah. 
Yes. And that'll be the first one on the list, so it'll be easy just to get into that. Sure. Um, so number five on the list is Veronica Valls. Uh, is directed by Rainer Warner Fassbender. It stars Roselle Sesh, Hilmar Thate, um, Anne-Marie Derringer, and Cornelia Frobus. Um, yeah. And it has a 76 from critics and an 82 from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. So you want to tell us just a little bit about this and uh, why I made the list? It's pretty pretty crazy low critical score because it won... Um... What, the golden lion or whatever whatever the um, yeah, golden bear or something golden like that. bear yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. um so it's semi semi loosely based on the life of a real life actress named um sybil schmitz who was a um nazi war era star who had a relationship with um goebbels and who post-world war ii kind of fell into disfavor because of her continued involvement like right till the end of the war with um the nazi regime um she was uh, kind of a mess as a person and ended up um becoming like a drug addict and and passing away Mm -hmm. um so veronica voss is really kind of the same story you know it's a woman who um, purports to have had an affair with Goebbels, um who was really famous at one point but has kind of fallen on hard times and has trouble getting roles um she's still sort of ego driven where she feels like she should be getting like good film roles although um she's addicted to morphine and she meets by chance this um reporter who doesn't even know who she is but he kind of becomes obsessed with her um and finds out that she's being treated for um some whatever nebulous disease by this nefarious psychiatrist who's basically keeping her or no neurologist not psychiatrist neurologist who's basically keeping her like hopped up on morphine so she can drain her money from her um he has a girlfriend who sort of like tacitly endorses the affair um so for the first part of this movie it's it's really kind of a a sad meditation on like fading fame and um public perception and what constitutes um love and there's a lot of things um fassbender really interesting guy who started in the theater um and kind of just made these movies that were about loss and longing and um, loneliness he's he's very much into the like deep meditations on the human condition and usually like the sadder parts of the human condition um and then veronica Walsh just kind of like goes crazy where um the reporter sends his girlfriend in to um kind of sort of uh, what's what's that movie with the woman that goes to the mental institution and ends up getting committed and is it shock therapy is that what it's called yeah um so similar to that where like she goes in as kind of a mole to see if she can get the um the neurologist on board to like prescribe her morphine and try and take her money and they end up like murdering her um and then he finds out and voss ends up getting like dying from an overdose as her money's running out and he can't do anything to prove it because like there's no evidence that and there was any real foul play 
because it just looks like an overdose and i don't know it's 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 really like a, a 180 kind of like, mm-hmm. i don't know like three quarters of the way through the movie um it's black and white which is really interesting at the time because there wasn't a lot of movies being made in black and white um i think it's really gorgeous black and white um fastbender does a lot with especially like light and the reflection of light in the camera lens um to kind of i guess like illustrate the fading star of this woman and also um plays a lot with like shadow and framing in terms of like really light backgrounds against really dark um clothing and interiors and um it's interesting too because so rainer rainer Werner fassbender um made something like 44 movies and like teleplays in the span of 13 years or something like that Uh and then died of an overdose of cocaine and barbiturates so there's also this kind of weird like a year after this right oh no the same year same year okay yeah he this movie came out and like two months later he was dead um this was the last movie that was released during his lifetime um yeah i can't remember what the name of the movie that was really yeah. well i just think it's funny yeah i thought it was the following year just because i knew there was one more after this but it's like he, he's squeezing another one in those two months so <laughs> one of the most interesting things about him is that because he came from a theater background and had this like diy aesthetic to his um like in working in the theater he knew blocking and lighting and sound and editing um and really got along well like was kind of like a common man's director so he got along really well with like crew and could make four or five movies a year i mean it almost in the same way that like takashi Mike um can just churn out like five or six movies sometimes in a year um fastbender would do the same thing i mean th- this is a man that made a 13 hour television series uh berlin alexander plots um based on a novel um in the same year that he made like two movies so mm-hmm. Um, just crazy output from a guy in a short period of time. Um, I, I like Veronica Voss and I think it's a really good movie. Um, he definitely has better movies. Uh, one of which we've already talked about in the marriage of Maria Braun. Mm-hmm. Um, the bitter tears of Petra von Kant is really great. Um, but his, his best movie, which as a spoiler is going to be on the 84 list when we get to that point. Um, Ali, uh, fear eats the soul um one of the 74 74 yeah Yeah. one of the most beautiful and heartfelt and like crushingly sad and i don't know just like you're you're gonna cry when you watch that movie and it's it's fucking fantastic yeah sight and sound just like released their 10-year like top 100 movies list or whatever and i saw that was like pretty high on that list yeah it's in the top 20 or something it's it's an amazing movie it was the thing that kind of brought him to the public consciousness because he was renowned in germany at the time but um kind of unknown outside of germany and then when um ali came out um he became sort of like an international superstar um and crazy because it was made for like almost no money um again like he's a guy that could do multiple things on a film like he would he would direct and he would do the cinematography and he would um, work on the lighting and the sound and he would act and like pretty much everything. So he was able to like really do so many things at once that he could, he could produce like a lot of movies every year. Mm -hmm. Um, I've only seen maybe a third of his output, 
but um just a really fascinating guy um he was uh, a bisexual although he described himself as a homosexual that needed women um so a lot of torrid affairs with uh, men and women um most of the time people that he either acted with or would fall in love with and then put into his movies um his beau at this point i think was a secretary maybe in this movie if i remember yeah 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 she plays it's actually his wife i think or ex-wife um she plays the there's a scene where boss is going to a director to try and um sort of like force her way into a part um and his fassbender's uh significant other is playing like the the director's secretary Mm, okay um a couple of really heartbreaking scenes in this movie um it's interesting because i and i guess because he was so i mean i don't want to imply that just because i mean someone's like promiscuous or has a, a lot of whatever like paramours that they're troubled but Fassbender did you know a lot of drugs and drank a lot and like definitely did not take care of himself and um I think that that informs the way that he directs the Veronica Voss character has to um even though it's it's semi um semi-biographical about this woman um that actually lived um who also had a really crazy life and had drug addiction problems and um cheated on her husband for long periods of time with both men and women um so i guess that maybe that's why fassbender had kind of a an affinity for this character but you can definitely tell that there's sympathy for it where she's not played as a villain even though she does bad things um she's almost played i'm not even almost like she's portrayed as a victim Mm -hmm. and a victim of people that just want what they can get from her um either based on their own needs or like what she can provide from her past um it's really interesting too because fassbender really focuses a lot through the course of his movies on kind of the the german guilt over um the nazi party Mm -hmm. so there's a lot um earlier movies too but in this one specifically where the idea can you truly like accept someone back who you know openly whatever participated in or um profited from you know the nazi regime so um but he's a he's a really fascinating guy um if if anybody because it'll be two years before it comes up but if anybody has the time um ali is is amazing um but marriage of maria braun and the bitter tears of petra von can are also pretty fantastic and definitely worth watching and i think that this movie which is on criterion little under two hours so not really long um but you know entertaining throughout um and really like brilliantly shot and beautiful yeah yeah the i uh, one of the more interesting things that i never heard before um as i was researching criticism is that i saw somebody call it a uh, noir blanc um as opposed as opposed to um you know, uh, or a, a film blanc as opposed to the film noir. I mean, yeah. Um, and and then I can see what you like. You you were actually as you were describing, like you know the the lighting and stuff like that. Like it reminded me of that. Um, yeah, I thought so, this was inter. Oh, sorry. I have a response to that. Uh-huh. Um, I I think that's kind of a snide like way of looking at it. I I I think the Fassbender's point in the way he films this movie is to emulate the idea of like the silver screen and the um 
the glaring light, like the spotlight of fame, um, and then juxtapose that against the dark things and the terrible things that are happening in this woman's life. And this man who becomes, you know, like obsessed with her without even really knowing who she is at first, but is drawn in and, you know, it costs him the life of his girlfriend and his career and um, just this almost like supernova maybe or something like like or black hole but like this bright star like drawing these people into their gravity and there's kind of like destroying them um and then just the fact that the place that's the most evil is the most uh benign looking and well lit like there's you know the neurologist's office is very much you know it's it's bright it's modern Mm -hmm. um when he films there it's probably the most clearly defined i think filming in the movie yes where everything is very sharp edged and bright um and i think that really is just kind of a like a visual um almost like device to illustrate you know that or juxtapose against the darkness that really is like the heart of this movie so yeah, I mean, obviously, when they shoot in her house and stuff like that, like, you know, the lighting is done, like, the coloring is done so differently, where it's, like, basically, it's, like, anything that's bright stands out. Like, I mean, Christ, their skin glows almost, like, when they film in her house, um, because everything is just so dark. Like, um, everything, like, the furniture's dark, like, you know, the floor's dark, like, everything is just dark and poorly lit and... um yeah, and it seems like that's, like, the kind of impetus of, like, a lot of her issues, like, to some degree, is was that marriage, and... Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, the obvious influence here, I think, is Sunset Boulevard, right? Like, yeah, yeah, 100%. And I, I think the interesting thing is, is that uh, is a Fassbender doesn't, like, let this character, like, have anything? Like, I mean, at least Norman Desmond, to some degree, like there was like something interesting about um this how like films and real life are juxtaposed in some way and it's like this is more depressing than sunset boulevard is uh of just this like kind of broken hysterical woman who um like gets like nothing like necessarily that interesting about her at all she's just being used and gaslit and drugged and um it's a really just heartbreaking depressing story um yeah and it doesn't completely excuse her either because she's allowing herself to have these things happen because she clings to the idea that somehow Mm -hmm. it's going to allow her to reclaim her fame so she's even though i again i think the fassbender does in the majority of the movie kind of portray her as the victim i don't think he fully exonerates her either which i think is really i think there's a lot of nuance to this movie that can kind of be overlooked on first glance um and i think part of that is because he sees a lot of himself in the character um and can recognize his own you know failings and foibles while still maintaining i guess like a level of um i don't know what i'm looking for self-awareness self-awareness while still having the ego of somebody that you know can create 44 Mm -hmm. fucking movies in 13 years so sure uh you you did ask about the criticism um in the 76 score uh from critics 
part of that part of that is due to people thinking that this movie isn't as good as some of his earlier work um and kind of like uh lessening their uh approval of it uh through what i read but the other thing is uh something you just mentioned which is this idea that there's a lot of feminist critics who look at his later works and criticize them for um, being anti-woman in the sense that the woman is always somehow responsible for her plight in life. Um, and there's a large feminist uh, uh, critical movement against Fassbender. Uh, and um that is not uncommon for him whatsoever among any group like that he's been criticized by lgbtq um uh critics like you know so he it's like he he's he was obviously criticized by the right wing of the country um for his subject matter um but he was criticized by leftists um at times uh it almost feels kind of to me like he's always like if he's pissing everybody off he's probably doing something that's complex um and I think you're right. I mean, Marriage Maria Vaughn was very complex too, in right. terms of how it's dealt with its, uh, you know, its female characters, and and its male characters as well. Um, but I, I think specifically its female characters. And yeah, I mean, I think it's complexity as opposed to judgment in any way. Um, yeah. And also, I mean, this is pretty closely based on the life of this woman. Um, and I don't. One of the things I like the most about Fassbender is his ability to show complex issues and paint people as morally divergent individuals without making them caricatures, kind of. So, I mean, I, I guess I understand that feminist criticism in some way, but I also sure. think it's sort of short-sighted because I really don't think she's a bad person. She's just in a bad situation and she can't get out of it because she's trying so hard to regain what she had at one point and you know she's never going to get there right like she can't ever come back from it because she's too far gone in terms of the drugs and in terms of her own like lack of self-awareness in a lot of ways so i don't know yeah yeah, like I said, I can understand where they're coming from. And you have to remember, this is, you know, like early 80s, like feminist critiques. Um, I don't know how that would be viewed today um, whatsoever. I didn't see anything more recent from um, from that lens. But um, certainly at the time, it was uh, one of the things that was kind of held against um, the movie in some ways. Because it was, what, there's two other movies that kind of can constitute a trilogy around this time, right? That um, Well, it's, it's like Maria Braun and Lola or Lola, the, Lola, the the yeah. bdr yeah um trilogy yeah and um they kind of see some of the some similar things in both of those other movies as well i think that's crazy if i, I mean i see maria vaughn as actually a very feminist movie it's I about did. we talked about it yeah I did yeah too. the the empowerment of a woman who's taking agency of her own life you know through controlling her actions with men in the way that she needs to because of the society she lives in so i don't know yeah i mean i fastbender is a very amazing he, he's an amazing director and i wish that he would have at least lived for a couple decades longer to see like how he would have grown and the things he would have done um that man probably would have made like 100 movies if he even would have lived another like 10 years but um yeah so i would i would recommend um 
seeking out at least like four or five of his movies if you're interested in um really just well-crafted dramas and the human condition um so but yeah no interesting movie definitely a very interesting guy um crazy that on a list like and i i know like critically whatever but crazy this is like the number five movie to me but i couldn't figure right. out another place to put it so yeah yeah um all right so number four on your list is warner herzog's Fitzcarraldo. it stars claus kinski claudia cardinal jose Lagoy, and Mihel, miguel on hell fuentes it has a 77 percent from critics and 92 percent from audiences so you want to tell us a little bit about this one and uh why it made the damn list. that critic score is crazy too yeah um some people view it as like just his like worst movie like one of his worst movies yeah some people it's it's a messy movie so i'll i'll give it that but i mean we'll yeah i think it's messy with purpose um so this is the fourth collaboration between him and Kinski, I think, or fifth. Um, I don't remember my timeline right now. There's one more after this, um, but yeah, this. But the there's one. there's four before this, or three before this, right? Three before this, yeah. Yeah, um, Nosferatu, Aguirre, and um, uh, Wol- Wolchek or whatever. Yep. yep. Um, yeah, and then the, this, and then the one we've already talked about. Um, yeah, Cobra Verde. Cobra Verde. Yeah. Um. So. Kinski is a uh, failed businessman who's obsessed with the opera. Um, lives in is it Peru that they're in? Peru, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, in a town called Ignacio, where there's a large um, rubber industry, but the rubber industry is controlled by this corporation that basically will you have to lease out land from them and be able to basically pay for the land in order to profit from the rubber industry. So um i can't remember what his name is but uh fitzgerald is what he's called by the the natives brian sweeney fitzgerald brian yeah brian sweeney fitzgerald thank you um decides he comes with this idea that he's going to take a seemingly inaccessible plot of um land and find a way to get there so he, he can enter into the rubber baron industry or whatever i don't know um so he has to go through a pretty inaccessible part of the Amazon, I guess is what's in Peru. Um, the Amazon mm-hmm. River. Yep. Um, and he buys finance through his wife, who um, I guess is a madam, really like a high class madam. She owns a brothel. Um, buys this old steamship that he's going to take down the river and get to this plot of land. So um, has to go through a place that's notorious for having um, some pretty aggressive natives. Um, I don't know if natives is a proper term, in, indigenous people. Um, and ends up kind of, I guess, enthralling them with his indomitable spirit, sort of, to the point where, like, they start to help him and kind of help him crew his ship when everybody abandons him. Um, and culminates in them lifting the steamship over this mountain, basically, like, high grade mountain to the other side where he can um get to his plot of land um but the steamship gets cut free by the elder of the tribe in order to appease the river god so he kind of loses everything he's not able to get to the rubber so he comes back to san ignatio without anything um but ultimately is able to like 
bring the opera there and i don't know i'm gonna i'm not gonna lie like i wasn't able to watch this movie because of my schedule so it's been probably 10 years since no nah, that's not true like maybe two years since i've seen Fitzcarraldo. um so i have a lot of like very deep like visual memory of Fitzcarraldo because there's some pretty crazy uh visual stuff in this movie um marred by a lot of production issues um mm-hmm. to say the least right um probably maybe the i guess like most difficult production of herzog's career um including losing its um main actor at one point and um a supporting role by mick jagger that would be completely cut because he had to leave mm-hmm. um it's i think it's the most human performance by kinski in a Herzog movie where he's not I don't want to say a villain but not like a caricature or not that Aguirre is a character Aguirre is a very complex like villainous character who still has some elements to him that you can see as being understandable even if they're not necessarily righteous um Fitz Fitzgeraldo is the most idealistic pure-hearted version of Kinski that um, Herzog ever gives you. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of um, if you've watched the other Kinski stuff, especially um, Aguirre and Nosferatu, it's almost uh, shocking to see his performance here um, to the point where I I, I think you really end up feeling bad for the guy like throughout the entire movie. Oh, sure. Um, he's just like he's this idealist and he doesn't have a lot of support from the people around him in fact he's he's kind of a joke to a lot of people that are like wealthy in the area um especially because he's a failed businessman and he's so passionate and yeah he's like this uh sad sack dreamer like compared yeah. to everybody else you know i mean almost like the town fool in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um yeah. which makes it kind of sad yep. um yeah so yeah i mean i I think that like makes you root for Fitzcarraldo through this movie i i think it's like probably you're right like you look at aguirre which we just talked about again last month and you look at the performance there and how like kind of like there's another dreamer in some ways but it's 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 a it's a more menacing kind of like you know um nightmarish dream i guess but like this is a guy who just wants to bring an opera house because he loves music so much like to this like you know this town and i i think out of all no i haven't seen a lot of herzog movies i've just seen the ones basically that you you've told me to watch but it's like to me this is like not only the most most emotionally connected you get to any of the of the characters and anything i've seen so far it feels like it's the most emotionally connected herzog himself is to a character um and i think you're right you see that how he like kind of like films um like that you know energy and sympathize of 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 kinsey in this like that energy that he has that man almost like a little bit like a nervous manic energy that like comes out and then he sympathizes obviously a lot of times with uh the Fitzcarraldo character as he's filming this and i i think there's some i think there's some minor like autobiographical elements to Fitzcarraldo in terms of the way that Herzog portrays him as a guy who is clever enough to see different angles that can be taken to a situation 
but either unlucky enough or not talented enough to pull him off. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, like, it's it's brilliant. Fitzcarraldo's idea that, you know, I'm going to go down this river that no one else will go down. And I'm just, you know, going to, instead of, like, taking the same route everybody else does, I'm going to take this alternate route and then just, <laughs> like, cut across, you right. know, but cut across, like, whatever that is, the Andes or whatever that's there. Um, I guess it is the Andes, right, in Peru? Um, anyway, I, Klaus, Klaus Kinski is, is a really, really fascinating actor because he's one of those guys, he's almost like Robert Mitchum or, uh, who else is a good example of that? Um, where sometimes you get a performance out of him and it is almost like in, like it's not even almost it's 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 inimitable like there's nobody else that could do the performance that Kinski does and then he's in just really awful like B movies throughout the 70s and 80s I mean he'll he basically will play anything and he's a scenery chewer sometimes and he's really subtle sometimes and there's a manic energy to him and then sometimes there's like a depressed almost like um negative energy it's just he's a really complex interesting like fascinating um person and i think it comes out in his performances and super difficult to work with i mean there's a documentary about the making of this movie called burden of dreams um which is definitely worth watching um that'll show um the difficulties that were had in the production um including the fact that you know uh herzog legitimately was like lifting a fucking steamship i mean this isn't like the world of special effects like he's like actually doing the thing that the characters are doing um do you have a funny story so i didn't even know this story um but about uh one of the the so they herzog had also made uh, acquaintance and friends with the the locals from the area Mm -hmm. um and they were like he was respectful and friendly and so he was well respected and um the story you told me the other night so if you want to tell it because you oh um so kinski you know is known for being i mean i i want to say that i read that he was diagnosed with schizophrenia i believe um or something along those lines at some point in his life and so he could be problematic on set, you know, there's, you know, famed history with him and Herzog having problems, but um, he apparently is particularly bad on the set of this movie after he was, uh, you know, kind of like brought in in the recast and would yell and, um, you know, bitch at production people and other actors and Herzog himself and was just a nuisance um, throughout like the entire filming of this um really on like some of his worst behavior and the um indigenous people that uh herzog had uh cast in the movie and like you know made relations with like the tribe uh one of the tribal elders i guess came to herzog and 
um, very earnestly um, uh, and in good faith offered to kill Kinski for 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 Herzog um, because they saw Kinski's behavior and thought it was extremely disrespectful and, um, you know, legitimately offered to just murder Kinski um for him and uh herzog had to kind of like politely decline the offer <laughs> um but uh yeah so kinski was very close to being murdered by the uh, locals um during the course of this movie because of his behavior which is fat which is fascinating for a number of reasons and funny but it's like the character that you see on the screen is so likable and while yeah he's using a little bit i guess of like you know this kind of prophecy to lead these like locals along um of like this like white man who's going to like come with you know like to save them that's part of like some sort of a uh, tribal lore um he uses a little bit of that but they actually are naturally drawn to him like you know but it's like it's completely opposite offset which is that they just absolutely despise him as a person right um but in the terms of the character it's like he's um this you know grand like you know hope like for everybody yeah he's um people don't really talk about kinski as much i don't think but he's another one of the problematic like figures from the 70s and 80s that was kind of iconic and has sort of fallen out of favor because there's you know sexual abuse allegations against him against his daughters and um again just to your point like these accounts of him just being like an absolute menace um there's a quote from herzog that i think is like maybe the most interesting thing which is uh, let me find it oh where is it One of the greatest actors of the century, but also a monster and a great pestilence. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, I think that's pretty fascinating that like, yeah, I don't know. But again, just really like there's some really uncomfortable stuff with him and like, um, yeah, N N Natasha Kinski has never accused him of any kind of like actual like sexual intercourse, um, like rape or anything, but said that he was very like sexually suggestive around her in the way that he would like touch her and then pola kinski who's his other daughter has said that he like would engage in intercourse with her for like most of her young oh, life so i never i didn't yeah, really get that far well and that's the thing is like kinski's one of those guys where he he passed away early enough where it was sort of before that stuff was really talked about a lot so yeah i think that because he was he was dead it and <clears throat> not super well-known in america and outside of like um whatever you call it like people who watch like cult movies or anything um so he's kind of escaped some of the um the well-deserved like criticism and scorn that a lot of these other um like woody allen uh, polanski mm -hmm. um people that like remained active and still have tried to maintain a career in hollywood um have gained but it, it's really uncomfortable and like to think about that stuff but we've always asked the question you know how do you separate like the artist from the sin or whatever right like can you like view someone's art as being separate from like the terrible things that they may or may not have done and um i don't know i mean i it always kind of makes me feel uneasy like watching kinski anymore but um some really great performances in these movies um 
this one i would rank like Aguirre is one of my favorite movies mm-hmm. of all time but to me um i think this is like number two in terms of kinski's performance um more so than than cobra verde um he's fascinating in nosferatu but that's a very singular performance that's more or less an homage i guess to sure, sure. um whatever his name was from uh from the original nosferatu mm-hmm. um shrek Ma- max max shank check i can't remember Sh- yeah yeah um anyway so i just do it real quick i want to make a quick correction he was a preliminary diagnosed with schizophrenia later in life it seems that um he was diagnosed with what we know today as antisocial personality disorder which actually makes a lot of sense now yeah, yeah. I, I think schizophrenia is one of those things where um, it's kind of like how this is not like the best analogy, but everyone had ADHD for a long time mm-hmm. until they started to really understand a little more. Yeah. And there's still people um, with ADHD. It's just that it's not as many as they thought. Right. Like it's a category that became tighter, tight, more tightly defined over time. Yeah. But yeah, this was the fifties. They diagnosed him with schizophrenia. So it's like there was a, not a, good understanding of it and later in life it was yeah you know more accurately diagnosed but you're right yeah so it, i know i think it's a pretty good analogy actually so if you've never seen if you've ever seen any herzog movies you need to start with Aguirre. um but after that uh fitzcarraldo was a good place to go next um if just not for anything but the spectacle of seeing uh this kind of massive mess of a movie um and then i would say like you know watch like burden of dreams or um my best fiend um both of which are pretty interesting looks um into a a pretty tumultuous relationship and then specifically the tumultuous making of this this movie so yeah i mentioned last month that it's like a year is like moved in like my top like 2025 of all time um having watched a few times now and this is not a movie that will make that, but I, I do want to just say for those of you that like like me, if I read the plot description of this movie, I would have no interest in actually watching it, probably. Um, I might even argue the same thing about Aguirre. Like the the idea of people going down like a body of water on like a raft or a boat or something like is not like the type of thing that I would typically seek out necessarily. But there is something about like Herzog as a filmmaker that makes the story behind like those journeys like absolutely captivating um he's uh absolutely just like phenomenal filmmaker um he films scenery in such a way that it's like you know I like I'll never go to Peru like I don't really have any interest in that like I feel like I'd probably like get bitten by something and die immediately Mm. like um but that's my own phobias but it's like the scenery in this is absolutely gorgeous like you know yeah. and like the backgrounds and everything like there he's just a really great filmmaker and like pretty much everything that i've watched now of his um is even if it's not like necessarily my type of movie it's just he's such a like you know uh 
you know, uh, just interesting guy that he makes the things around him interesting to me. And uh, yeah, so if you're like really reluctant because of like when we talk about like what the movies are about, like, you know, kind of ignore that and just go into it and give it a chance, but especially Aguirre. But yeah, this was good too. I really like this a lot. Isn't Aguirre filmed in Peru? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Because they, they're descending past like Machu Picchu, right? At one point, yeah. like down the, mm-hmm. yeah. down the Andes Mountains. So yeah. 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 But he's like he films in a different part here though, where it's like it's it's almost obvious it's like a different time period, like or it's like he's like found locations, um, that are like different enough from one another. Like I, the hillsides in this, like with the trees like going up the hillsides, which you don't see quite as much of. Um, it's a lot more kind of like I don't know terrain like mountainous and cliff sides in Aguirre where this is like much more hilly and valleys and stuff like that um and the trees are different in this too and it's just um really gorgeous like seeing like um like this I guess specific part of the river really yeah but yeah Herzog has a definite affinity for um filming things in nature and like kind of showing the majesty of of the environment around you get that Nosferatu too, like during the scenes where they're going through the mountains. Sure. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, the way that he, he just, he, he very, very good eye for filming the setting that's around his characters and not just focus on the characters themselves. Right. Yeah. All right. Um, so number three on your list is Blade Runner directed by Ridley Scott stars, Harrison Ford, Rucker Howard, Sean Young, Edward James almost M. M. Emmett Walsh and Daryl Hannah has an 89% from critics and a 91% from audiences. So you want to just tell us a little bit about this and uh, why it made your list? Uh, an adaptation of Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Um, one of the first, I would say, cyberpunk movies, like maybe the first movie that could be credited with kind of like being in that genre. Yeah. Um, it involves... Uh, Harrison Ford's um, Decker, Rick Deckard character, um, whose job as a quote-unquote Blade Runner is to track down um, these, I don't know what you call them, like... Replicants? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I know replicants, but, like, they're kind of like... Like, androids, but not really androids because they have, like, a um, biological element to them. Mm-hmm. Um and terminate them like retire them as what it's called um there's four replicants that are on earth illegally so deckard is kind of tasked with finding them um they i didn't watch blade runner either i'm not gonna lie it's been a long time since i've seen blade runner so you may need to help me out if you watched it yeah um you 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 go ahead and describe the plot and then we'll talk okay so i mean like the so basically it's like you know um the the blade runners are kind of like a slightly older thing by the time by the start of the movie um and um because the replicants are like you know like basically not around anymore but these like four of them come back to earth it's uh red uh the group is led by uh roy batty um which is a rucker Hauer character and uh they come back they're the the replicants here are like kind of like combat like androids like um so the idea is that there's like a sense of like danger to these and any replicants that are found they need to be retired as frank said 
Um, so it ends up in this kind of like, you know, uh, slow kind of investigative mode of trying to like track these, um, you know, replicants down by Deckard, who's been pulled out of retirement um, to resume his blade, you know, Blade Runner position. And um, because of his experience. So um, it, it ends up like, you know, one of the replicants ended up uh, infiltrating the Tyrell Corporation, which is um, who created the replicants in the first place in the early part of the 21st century, I guess. Um, yeah, this takes place in 2019. Right. Yes. Um, so, uh, so that like leads like Decker to the Tyrell Corporation. He finds out there is actually a fifth replicant, which um, is um, Tyrell's assistant. But Tyrell's been experimenting with her and giving her fake memories, um, uh, so she can be like more controlled. And like uh, there ends up being this kind of like romantic relationship that starts between the assistant and Deckard. And it starts getting into these kind of philosophical questions about if, like, she has memories, is she human now? Like, is she more human than, you know, Android? And so it gets into those kind of, like, philosophical sci-fi-esque questions. Um, eventually, though, he ends up, like, tracking down these replicants and, you know, like, you know, fighting ensues and all those kind of things. And um, eventually, like, all of them are killed. Um and then there was a the famous stuff about like Deckard and like, you know, the different versions of the movie of whether he himself is a replicant and all that kind of stuff, which eventually gets answered by uh what's twenty forty nine? Yeah, Villeneuve. Um uh in twenty forty nine. Um but yeah, I mean extremely famous movie, um, that probably a lot of people, um, I would think, uh, in our type of audience probably has seen before, um, at least once in their life. But um so what uh what draws you to this movie specifically like that you like about it um so again i think that blade runner is um, pretty much responsible for the entire cyberpunk um aesthetic mm -hmm. and a lot of the um, a lot of the tropes or whatever from the genre come from from Blade Runner. So you have the idea of the advanced technology was still like the slummy, like underside of a city. Um, the mixing of Asian culture um, almost is like saying that, you know, like Asian cultures was going to spread and eventually become like the norm in the world. Um, there's some pretty iconic performances here. So Daryl Hannah's press character. Um, Rucker Howard is Roy Batty, um, Harrison Ford's Deckard character. Um, it's also one of the first places where it's it's really good, like futurism in terms of the technology. Um, for instance, the flying cars, um, the <laughs> the enhancing screen or whatever, um, the enhance enhance, you know, where he's like mm -hmm. um, enlarging and uh, clarifying. Um, an image that's otherwise distorted um and it's really it's it, it's one of these movies where i think had blade runner not gone through so many iterations over the years um it may not be it may not have stayed in the public consciousness as much mm -hmm. um because it's i i think blade runner is a really well filmed um interesting movie 
but the fact that there's like seven different versions of Blade Runner and <laughs> um yeah all of which kind of with a different perspective on what's actually happening does Rachel live does Rachel die is right. Ra- is you know is is Deckard a replicant um it's it's just crazy that because of like test screenings and studio interference um that Scott had to change so much of this movie so many times and that's had so many iterations. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's beautifully filmed. I think that, um, again, really like clearly defines the aesthetic of an entire genre, um, that still remains popular to this day. Um, I think you, I mean, the Genesis of course is Philip K. Dick and, and his, his books, but I don't know that, that genre gains as much prevalence especially during our childhood so early to mid 90s um cyberpunk like really became popular in a lot of ways through um uh, pop culture and literature and um, video games and uh, tabletop role-playing games um and all of that is sort of directly traceable back to this movie and I would also credit um, Terry Gilliam's Brazil for being a part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas that's more of an absurdist take on a similar idea of this dystopian future. Um, Blade Runner is a very like deathly serious take on it. Yes. Um, Roy, Roy Batty is one of my favorite villains of all time. Um, and I think he's also one of the most. He's incredibly vicious and um what's the word i'm looking for he's he's vicious and his actions are inexcusable but his actions are also understandable and when you look at him as almost being like an alpha predator that's just out to save his own life um because of something that was engineered in him that he can't control which is you know this four-year lifespan for these replicants um it becomes really kind of sad and poetic at the end when he dies the whole um you know, will my memories be washed away like tears in the rain? Mm-hmm. Um, other great lines like Batty's like, you know, I want more life, fucker. He, um, what is it? Like I've seen, oh, shit, what's the, the Steins Gate or whatever? I can't remember that exact line, but um, just a really great performance by Howard. Um, and just a really great movie. I think it's, I think it's maybe, it, depending on what version you watch, because uh, again, seven different versions of varying lengths um generally i i consider i don't even know which version i consider to be like the definitive i'm i'm fine with the original blade runner honestly um maybe a little bit too long but definitely worth watching if you've never seen it um if for anything to set yourself up to be able to watch what in my opinion is the superior um denny villeneuve um blade runner 2049 um which to me is one of the best movies of the past 20 years um yeah and i'm also a sucker for the cyberpunk like aesthetic and i like i i like this movie quite a bit i'm a fan of that the idea behind that um i never played the cyberpunk game um i know that you've played it and enjoyed it um but i played i played shadow run when i was a kid but Mm -hmm. um the genesis and super nintendo version and the tabletop version um, I've played the the Deus Ex games um, with various varying degrees of enjoyment there, but um, 
Yeah, Cyberpunk's video game is a little brighter than this movie. I actually prefer the aesthetic of this than maybe like that, like something like that game because it's it's darker in nature. Um, yeah, this is a very like dark, dark cyberpunk um, as opposed to like I mean, there's the brightness of the advertising constantly blaring all the time and like the neon and stuff like yeah. that. But it's like, but it like like as a both in uh, setting and and mood, like this is an extremely dark version of cyberpunk, and um, it's what I prefer probably. Like um, in in terms of the setting, like this kind of like dismal world in a lot of ways, I I prefer um this for those type of movies. It's a yeah. sci-fi setting that I like. Um, and I, I think in that and the and the and the visual nature of the movie, um. Uh, of the world he establishes visually i i think scott deserves like uh, tons of credit here obviously this is iconic and um in- influential um and conceptually i like this movie i mean this is probably going to be like slightly controversial like maybe like, i thought we had talked about this movie before but uh, i couldn't find it and then you told me beforehand we only talked about it when we talked about 2049 three years ago but um I've watched this movie twice in the past few years, and while I appreciate it visually and conceptually, like, after a certain point in this movie, not far in, 30 minutes maybe, like, I I think the pacing of this is too damn slow for an investigation. Like, I, I feel like the investigation just drags this movie down in terms of pacing to where... um it's rather plotting like of a movie to sit through at times um and i'm somebody who likes neo-noir who likes you know like detective type stuff and i actually find this movie kind of dull like in terms of the story of it um overall like i think they bog it down in way too much detail at times i think scenes maybe extend too long um and I don't think there's a problem with the performances necessarily. I think it's a problem with the um, with the story a little bit, um, and and maybe how long they give certain scenes. Uh, the other thing that I'll say, even though I like um, Rucker Hauer in it, like I really don't feel like there's much of a threat in this movie. As I'm, I don't feel like there's a threat necessarily. Like. I mean, maybe that is the point of the movie is that these things aren't like these replicants aren't nearly as like the biggest threat as like what the world has made them seem. Right. But um, but at the same time, it's like I really don't feel like there's the stakes are very high as I'm watching it either. Like so. So let me let me yeah. speak to that, I think. Yeah. Um, number one, if you feel that way, just wait 10 minutes and there's another version of Blade Runner. <laughs> That you can watch that'll that'll change that right um i think i think the inherent point of the movie is what you just said in that they're not the threat the yeah. the real evil of the movie is the corporation that created these living creatures and then villain like vilified them and abandoned them for you know whatever like as obsolete technology basically Mm-hmm. And just like, aren't they in some ways entitled to life? You know, like, are they not, should they not be entitled to live? Um, 
as sentient beings because don't they have memories like don't they have life experiences and um i want to read uh roy batty's uh end speech like before he dies because i always think it's fucking awesome but Mm -hmm, it is um i've seen things you people wouldn't believe attack ships on fire off the shoulder of orion i watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the tannhauser gate all those moments will be lost in time like tears in the rain and then time to die i mean it's just like this man that like this this not man this like monster basically that you've been led to believe is like the villain shows the most empathy and compassion at the end by saving Deckard's life and it's like I I think that's the question you know I mean that's the poetic nature of you know do androids dream of electric sheep is a philosophical question like just because a living thing is made of different parts than a human doesn't make him any less worthy of being alive or less deserving of life you know what I mean and I think that's I think that's the question of Blade Runner and and maybe it's not done maybe there was a better way that it could have been done in terms of like the pacing of a movie but I still think it's like really interesting and I think that it gets you to that point and you know that scene on the rooftop with with Deckard and Batty is pretty pretty powerful yeah and then you know the scene at the end um depending on again which version you (laughs) watch um but with the idea that you think that Rachel's going to be retired, um, but then the captain has kind of like left his calling card to signify that this is your chance to kind of get away and like do what you want to do to Deckard. Um, I think all that's really fascinating. It's just I, the the moral questions of it are asked in many different ways. You know, I mean, like Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke ask these same questions all the time, and you have movies like. Um, AI and iRobot and I mean I don't think those are good movies but it's 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 a similar idea like you know what constitutes life like what constitutes existence and again just because just because a thing is created from different parts than like a human is there any less validity to that thing's existence so I don't know yeah, I, I bet you the amount of money. It's like there there's certainly AI movies that I find interesting um and worthwhile. I I always kind of forget that Philip K. Dick is like basically the, the, the brain behind some of this. And um Well, listeners don't know, but it's like Frank knows like, you know, some of my feelings on um on, on Dick as a writer. Um uh, the different things I've like tried to read of his and I'm, I'm not necessarily a fan um, and I'm not necessarily a big fan of like that philosophical sci-fi and stuff like that or at least not in the sense of like it being like a key theme of it so it's it's, it's probably like some of my issues with like sci-fi and specifically writers like Dick um, overall but I mean there's certainly sci-fi that I really like like a lot um and it deals with kind of like heavy themes and stuff but it's uh the theme comes more naturally through the characters rather than being a part of the plot I guess and I think maybe by being part of the plot it's um it feels weighed down to me um as I'm watching it so the funny thing is part of what you're explaining is my problem with sci-fi right is that it's always got to be fucking boring like you know they always gotta like put too much into it um not the expanse i keep telling you i ain't watching that shit i watched one season it was fine <laughs> oh, i i just thought of a movie and then i forgot it all of a sudden um that was a really good example of this idea being done right um 
yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I think the 2049 is the superior movie. And I think that watching this movie informs that movie so well that it's almost vital to know. Sure. At least what transpires in Blade Runner before you watch Blade Runner 2049. Um, I, I, I think um, the runtime helps on 2049 a little bit, despite it being there, like pretty long movie. Um, because it allows the characters to actually have like more substantial storylines and more development and it leads to because it has just as many like kind of philosophical questions behind it um but i think it becomes more naturally through the storytelling of that movie than it does here would be my argument i i prefer that movie as well um compared to this and like i said i i completely understand this is an iconic movie like this has been more influential than you know maybe i would argue any movie on this list um uh, maybe not maybe not the second one um like overall but it's like uh it's one of the more like you know influential movies of of the early part of this decade um and uh i mean ridley scott's got two of them right (laughs) um from from right around this time period like of like two of the most influential movies um so i mean he's like kind of like a master in a lot of ways but um yeah i prefer alien to this too so so um yeah so there's other movies i think that uh, i'm not going to say they're better than blade runner um although one movie is arguably better you got things like 2001 um ex machina in the past 10 years which i think is like probably the best example of a modern movie that does that but it's just it's it's a really interesting question and it's actually sure. coming to the point where um in terms of technology we're almost kind of at that point with ai and robotics so maybe in the next 10 years you know i mean they might have only been a little bit off in terms of where philip k dick placed it but we may be at the point where we're asking you know does a computer that can think and adapt and learn constitute a being alive and will the computer think that it's alive? So I don't know. Yeah. Um friend of the podcast, um, Mike Blutzo, like uh he's he got me like occasionally watching like a, a a long form interview channel on YouTube um with a um computer scientist named um Lex Friedman, um, who interviews a lot of different types of people, but um in different fields. But um he he's focused a lot on ai and so there's a lot of conversations that appear on that podcast about ai and they and they are like i mean it's it's like every year they're getting closer um so you're right there's a we're probably i don't know if we'll make it but it's like we'll be close to making it i think before like me you know maybe like by the end of our lives like um you know that they might be asking these questions but certainly like you know within your son's lifetime i mean like i think like we'll be asking getting real close if not asking those questions and it's much sooner than we think um that kind of stuff like possible simulation theory like you know all those kind of things are like you know probably much closer than any of us imagine i mean if they're creating black i mean as you saw the other day it's like they're creating black holes right like they created a miniature black hole like what they called like a baby black hole or something like that like um uh it's like we're we're growing by leaps and bounds so i i think the question is interesting too i just don't think the movie is so much like as you sit (laughs) down and actually watch it like um no, good you thing can... you're not making the list. So, 
oh it deserves to be on this list that's not what i'm arguing i'm just arguing that if you actually go back and like watch the movie like you know and just like just 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 see like how you like your uh interest level like you know goes up and down like throughout the movie um and i think you might be surprised if you're looking at it like a little like objectively um well, i'm, I'm never gonna have time in my life to do anything so we'll, <laughs> we'll see what happens right all right um so this other like massively influential movie i think um is number two on your list it's john carpenter's the thing uh is, stars kurt russell wilford brimley tk carter donald moffat keith david richard dysart richard masser and david clement clennon um has an 84 percent from critics and a 92 percent from audiences uh we talked about this movie back in september of 2018 um in episode seven the top five alien movies so it's been a long long time since we talked about this so you want to tell us just a little bit about this movie and uh why it's on your list i talk about this movie all the time so I just you do yeah yeah uh, remake of the 1950s, I guess. Yeah. Um, original thing, thing from another planet or thing from outer space. But I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. Um, it involves a group of uh, Arctic explorers who um, witness a dog um, being attacked by men in a helicopter. Um, they take the dog in and they go to find where the men in the helicopter came from and they find this um, Swedish research station that's destroyed, um, including a man who's obviously slid his wrist with the blood frozen. It's um, and a block of ice with something cut out of the bottom of it. So they come to find out that these explorers found um, a thing frozen in the ice and that thing murdered like all of them basically or caused them all to die. So, over the course of a night, um, this creature, which is living inside the dog, um, comes to infect a number of them. And it's a really tense, paranoid thriller in terms of who's infected by the the creature, who's not. um, Them turning on each other, the way that Carpenter directs it is he keeps his cards close to the vest, so a lot of times... You don't necessarily know who the thing is. Um, And there's actually some fan theory uh, that um, Kurt Russell at the end of the movie is infected by the thing um, as the survivor. So um, it's interesting. Do you know know what that theory is exactly? Like why they say that? I can't remember. I watched a video on it a couple years ago. And it was one of those things where the person is so invested in the theory that they kind of make you invested in it. But I was like, nah, I don't know. Yeah. yeah um amazing special effects and all practical um rick baker and rob botten i guess um in terms of the thing transformations and some of the most iconic um creature images and imagery in a movie um one of the best uses of an isolated setting and a limited like a limited setting to really heighten tension and discomfort from you, the viewer, like between the characters and like watching events unfold. Um, also uses stuff like like the death of animals to really kind of pull emotion out of you, and a really brilliant performance from uh, all the cast, really, but Kurt Russell in particular, who's just fantastic in this movie. 
Um, I watch the thing once a year, maybe on average. Mm -hmm. Um, it's one of my 10 favorite horror movies of all time. Um, eh, 20 top 20, definitely. Uh, but my favorite, my favorite sci-fi movie of all time, I would say. Um, and just really like, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's, it's almost a flawless movie and I really can't think of anything in it that brings it down even a little bit. Um, so yeah i i haven't watched the thing actually because back in two like during those first like seven episodes um i actually wasn't watching all these movies um back then so i didn't watch it then so it's probably been at least a decade or more since i've seen it so it's good going back and um watching it again it was a movie growing up that was actually oddly enough it's one of those ones that's like a larry gasberry movie but i actually liked it um and uh, a lot of that had to do with Kurt Russell, I uh, in part. But a, a second is like it's just a really effective, um, you know, horror thriller, um, like yeah, this par- paranoid horror like movie. Uh, but yeah, I think the special effects still hold up over time. I think it's a lot of great performances um, in this. Uh, I actually found a lot of things interesting around the movie as opposed to the movie itself. Like as I was doing reading on it, um, I just think it's a really like uh tall, like, you know, intense um, paranoid thriller slash horror movie that is, you know, you watch it and it's like, you just get sucked in and it just like keeps like moving at a brisk pace um, throughout. Um, if there's any criticisms now that I'm adult, like I think like, some of the characters could be a little bit more developed maybe like at times if you had like a little bit more runtime um but most of them are f- developed enough for the plot of the movie yeah um and the only thing i saw thought it silly as i was an adult is that the moffat character early on when the norwegians out there that he busts out the window and shoots out the window it's like anybody who's trained that's the only thing i thought was silly in all of it a lot of their reactions make sense given the threat but it's like why would this guy bust out a fucking window in in the environment that they're in like you you think he'd be better trained than that um that's the only thing i thought was silly like as i was watching and every other than that everything their reactions like given the circumstances make a lot of sense even if the reactions don't make sense at times the the circumstance making them make bad decisions makes sense but um but yeah it's a really good really really good movie I, things I want to ask you about is that like reading criticism of this, it made me realize how universal the story is. Um, as I read different, like people try to say like what's behind the movie and what they think the movie is about, like, you know, like what's it, what's it making reference to. And there's people that talk about like cold war paranoia of like, whether somebody's a spy or not, or a communist or not. Um, which I think was what the original fifties was probably about. Uh Right. So like, they're like looking at it through this like lens of the fifties movie. Um, There's some critics that saw it as um, uh, referencing the HIV scare um, of the early eighties. And they cite things like the blood test and that kind of stuff as like this kind of paranoia um, about health. Um, I saw another critic that just wrote about it this year and obviously knows it's not about this, but you saw, was talking about how it ends up being a fairly effective analogy for um like you know communicable disease as well like in the sense of covid sure. um and it's like you i was reading all these things and it's like um 
it's actually pretty universal in a lot of ways. Yes. Just this yep. idea of like the idea of other and like the other being hidden and unknown and how that generates paranoia in a group of people um, and makes them other people um, in a lot of ways. And um, in, in that way, it's uh it's, it's pretty brilliant and timeless, I think um, overall. And it could, uh, you know, and yeah. given the special effects still hold up, I mean, I think it's, um, I think it's something that's going to hold up probably for a long time and it has over the course of 40 years um you know become a cult classic and a highly respected movie considering it was a box office bomb and um critical flop um at the time period um so yeah i i think it's something that's like actually like you know on age like wine i guess yeah. like you know i mean over time that people have come to respect and um uh, rightfully so one of the things that i'll say about it is um a lot of movies try and capture the the feel and the aesthetic of like the Lovecraftian monster, um, mm-hmm. the non-Euclidean whatever creature from beyond space that destroys your sanity. And I think that the iterations of the thing come the closest maybe to that idea mm-hmm. where it's like mm-hmm. not quite recognizable as something living on this earth but still enough where you can recognize it as a creature or like an imitation of something that is seen or digested or whatever um the tentacles like writhing out of it the you know the 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 head of the one guy like upside down with the spider legs i mean there's a lot of things in it that in terms of their visual aesthetic are super influential in in the horror um horror genre in the realm of um like weird fiction and whatever so especially from a cosmic horror standpoint it's a you know creature from beyond space i think it's probably one of the most effective um lovecraftian adaptations it doesn't come from lovecraft at all um like it's right. a sort of it's, it's sort of a good combination of something like cthulhu mythos and um color out of space you know mm-hmm. so yeah i um I, I love the thing again one of my favorite movies of all time and yeah always 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 super happy to have the time to watch it not free anywhere though which is pretty crazy uh yeah i did have to get this off youtube yep yeah buy and run it yeah um the only other thing i found really interesting the last thing i'll say about this movie is that uh considering like this like radically altered uh carpenter's career for those that don't know because this was a box office like so this came out the same days blade runner just so everybody knows like um like they were released at the same time and um this like was a was a really big flop um in terms of box office and wasn't critically regarded really well um he had a uh, carpenter at the time a contract with a uh, universal um and he was supposed to direct firestarter um after this and universal pulled firestarter from him and actually bought him out of his contract which like catapulted his career in an entirely different direction because otherwise he was going to be contracted with universal um movies for quite a while and otherwise we don't get like you know uh kind of the things that start like coming after this which um at that point like radically kind of changes um like 
my childhood uh, in a lot of ways because then Big Trouble in Little China like doesn't come about and um, but it's like it's what ends up making him go do Christine with Columbia and Starman with Columbia and then Big Trouble in Little China and Prince of Darkness yeah so it's like a lot of these things um, you know in the late nine or late eighties, we wouldn't have got had it not been for the um, kind of critical and uh, you know, commercial, um, you know, uh, flop of this movie. So yeah. it's I, I think it's really interesting, like just from like this movie that's like heralded as probably his greatest now. Um, I would say above, um, except for Halloween, maybe like this kind of like heralded as his greatest movie. Um, is it was actually like one of his biggest failures of the time period and actually like generated a whole lot of things that might not have happened otherwise so um just interesting from kind of like a like historical fate perspective sure always interesting to go back and think like what could have been if something wouldn't have been made or would have like faded into obscurity and what did we miss because of stuff that we never saw so yeah all right, so um, number one on my list. What's number one on your list? Number one on my list is 1982's First Blood, um, starring Sylvester Stallone, uh, Brian Dennehy. Uh, what's his name? The guy that plays Richard Crenna. Yeah, Richard Crenna. Yep. Um, directed by Ted Kocheff. Yep. Um, has an 86% from critics, 85% from audiences, and we uh, talked about this movie in uh, almost two years ago, exactly, November 2020, um, episode 89, top five 80s action movies, so um, so not, and it's been a while still, a couple years, but um, you want to go ahead and tell us why this is specifically number one on your list of the top films of 82? So this was a really hard decision between this and The Thing. Mm -hmm. Um... I love First Blood, and I think that the character of John Rambo in the context of this movie is one of the more interesting interesting looks at, at interesting condemnations of the Vietnam War and America's response to the Vietnam War without being, like, too heavy-handed and preachy. Mm-hmm. Um, John Rambo is a Green Beret um survivor of pow camps who has come home um he's trying to find his friend who lives in um, the pacific northwest in a town um he gets chased off by the sheriff for being like basically a long-haired hippie um finds out that his friend is dead and then he gets picked up by the sheriff and ends up a series of escalating events where rambo ends up in the woods murdering or not even murdering but injuring um, an entire posse of like sheriff's deputies um, and then coming back for uh, Denny's character, the corrupt sheriff himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we did a good job of talking about this when we talked about it before. So I don't know how much we really need to get into the particulars. Um, but what mm-hmm. I do want to talk about is something as my voice crack. <laughs> um, something I that what I do want to talk <laughs> about. Um, something you asked me to look into, which was to watch uh, First Blood Part 2. Mm-hmm. Um or I guess it's called Rambo Part Two First Blood. I don't know. Anyway, so um, it, it's Ram Rambo First Blood Part Two. Yeah, awful title. So Rambo has been to jail for, um, and in a couple of years, I guess. So it's uh, eighty-seven or eighty-five. It, it's it's been three years that Rambo's been in jail. Yeah, it's three years, right? Um, and because 
they've sort of like disavowed him um, when uh, Troutman comes to get him out. Um, he's sent on a mission that really, like, if he dies, they can just disavow, disavow that he existed. And if he succeeds, it's framed that he'll help save these POWs. So he's sent into um, Vietnam via Thailand uh, to take pictures of these constant or uh, prison camps and then report back to uh, the government, um, which you later find out is because the government wants um, basically to show that the POWs are no longer there. They want to use Rambo to kind of get out of Vietnam permanently and not ever have to think about rescuing anybody that's there. Um, but Rambo, Rambo can't help himself. So Rambo got to like rescue the one POW he can find and then go on this like fucking chase through these rice paddies and rivers. Like yes. with, um, he, he meets an interpreter there, Cal, who is this beautiful Vietnamese woman and he falls in love with her and she's like, Oh, you got to promise to take me home. And then she gets murdered. Um, Rambo gets betrayed by everybody stabbed in the back, never loses his cool or um whatever i loved first blood part two when i was a kid i mean honestly when i was when i was probably 10 years old 11 years old i would have probably listed first blood part two as my favorite movie of all time (laughs) um it does not hold up in the same way that some other movies do um, I still think that there's enjoyment to be had in it um, when you get past the mild um, racism and sexism that exists. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really the archetypical like 80s action movie and a lot of the beats and sure, um, just the way things are portrayed. Um, it's funny that so you asked me before the podcast about this movie specifically mm-hmm. and we both agreed that first blood is a well-crafted movie um it may have some you know some action in it but for the most part it's it's a it's a nuanced look at like this man who's felt abandoned by his country and his people and has come back and is just seeking this peaceful life and um i wonder if it's one of the first real uses of the idea of ptsd in terms of Mm. rambo like reacting poorly to external stimulus because of his um his experiences when he was uh, a prisoner of war mm-hmm. um it also falls back on the whole fucking um shit, i just lost my train of thought um i don't know i i i don't have it you lost it i did lose it um what was that what um the idea that um how much power can you invest in like the police um where's where does the abuse of power and like where does good policing end and abuse of power begin um because ultimately like Dennehy's being an asshole but he's doing what he thinks is best for his town and he doesn't want anything bad necessarily to happen to John Rambo but because he allows his deputies to get away with uh, certain excesses, um, he creates this monster of Rambo that basically takes out his entire police force. Um, 
but yeah, yeah, there, there's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, you're right. It is, it's, it's very interesting. And I mean, there's a lot of discontent around this time in the country in general. Even though Reagan's taken over, there's a recession going on. Like you know, I mean, that's. I think it's explaining. Like, I mean, a lot of these films, like the American films on this list, are very dark in a lot of ways. Um, sure. And and I think you're seeing like you know that uh you know the that that coming change in the country like you know where it's like um things are changing again like where it's like as these boomers like you know slowly age into these like you know kind of like reaganites um in the 80s i i think you're seeing the darkness of what they're sensing what they're feeling like you know taking place in the film and and, and some of that is dealing with the repercussions of vietnam um and and I wanted you to watch First Blood Part Two though, is because it's like to me it like is the it it is is it by that point there you're firmly entrenched in Reagan era America, um in that movie where everything is like this kind of like you know he's just this action hero now and right. it's all about going back and like doing the impossible basically like this like that, that, that doesn't happen like and certainly not in that way like you know so it's like this kind of like ultra patriotic um you know like but like still like here's like this one guy like doing everything pulling himself up by his bootstraps and still being like the dude and he's all muscular and ripped and um and it and it feels farcical as i'm watching it as an adult and obvious like slight propaganda like yeah. i don't think it's like full propaganda but it's slight propaganda um and then it has like the whole like little like code at the end where it's like they're still like still tries to have a message in the last 30 seconds of the movie a little bit um and then patriotic music like you know during the credits like this kind of like you know uh ballad kind of over the credits as it, as it runs but um first blood is actually like a real film yes that is trying to delve into the complexity of psychology of like you know social like you know issues and does it in a really interesting um you know well filmed well paced way with good performances by all the principals in it and um i don't know it's just it's such a radical like difference between those two movies that watching them when i'm in my 40s now both of them back to back it's like if like i liked first blood part two as well a lot when i was a kid but like looking at it now compared to first blood i mean first blood is an actual mature film um by a mature group of people like where first blood part two is um oh frank fell asleep on me yeah i'm awake <laughs> first blood part this is what this is what happens all the time when i talk with frank um his, it's, his... It's, it's been a long life brother <laughs> wrap it up um <clears throat> You got to give me the sign if you want me to wrap it up. Like, I was asleep, but you can't give me the sign. <laughs> but First Blood Part 2 is this... 22. <laughs> First Blood Part 2 overall is just this kind of... um, Just this uh, generic action movie um, in comparison. And I, I think I, the reason I wanted you to watch that is those two back-to-back, -back, I think, really shows the greatness of First Blood overall. All right, so um, we'll be back here in a couple weeks with um, the top five films of 1992 as we jump ahead another 10, 10 years and then wrapping up the month with the top five films of 2002. 
Um, and as always, you can kind of, um, if you want to torture yourself, like hear us wrap up um, really bad movies with the Spin Chagrin. We only have four episodes remaining for uh, the Spin Chagrin before the concept is finished for the year. Um, and they'll all be dominated by um, probably animal movies mostly. So, um, oh, yeah, the best. <laughs> check it out. Otherwise, thank you for listening. Have a good week. Deuces.